This morning, we're going to put a bow on the story of Samson. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 16. Samson is the final judge that we will look at in this book, even though we have about four more chapters to go in the book of Judges. So just remember to recap the last four weeks. In Judges 13, we learn about the circumstances surrounding Samson's birth. In Judges 14, we learn the story of his wedding. Last week in Judges 15, we looked at his defeat of the Philistines using a fresh jawbone, and he slaughters a thousand Philistines. And today is the most well-known part of the Samson story, the story that almost everyone knows, that of Samson and Delilah. So as we conclude his judgeship today, I want you to notice three observations from this chapter as we work our way through it. Number one, you're going to notice Samson's predictable behavior. Number two, you're going to notice Samson's meaningless vow. And then number three, his victorious death. So his predictable behavior, his meaningless vow, and his victorious death. The chapter begins, specifically in verses 1 through 3, giving us a description of what is going on in Samson's life. The chapter begins with him being in Gaza. Gaza is one of the leading cities of the Philistines. And while he's there, he decides that he's going to have sex with a prostitute. Now we're told that he saw a prostitute, which reinforces the idea and really sums up the entire judgeship of Samson. He did what was right in his own eyes. So he sees this prostitute, he wants her, and he has sex with her. First, if you go back to the very beginning of Samson's reign as judge, he's always behaving according to his own agenda, always doing what is right according to his own eyes. In chapter 14, he picks a wife, from among the Philistines, which he should not have done. In Judges chapter 15, after he abandons her for some time, he returns only for the purpose of wanting to sleep with her. He doesn't care for her well-being. This is all about him being fulfilled. Chapter 16, now we see him sleeping with a prostitute. So what does Samson have a problem with? Well, he's got a lot of problems, but one in particular problem that Samson has is he struggles with lust. He doesn't actually love any of these women. He's simply trying to fulfill himself sexually. So if you remember back to Judges 14, that riddle that Samson gives the Philistines when he's playing that game with them, the answer to that riddle in terms of Samson's life is actually women are sweeter than honey and women are stronger than a lion in Samson's life. They have this power over him. He has no self-control whatsoever in this area of his life. And since he's in a leading Philistine city, Gaza, and he meets this prostitute, the leaders of Gaza construct this plan to try to ambush and overthrow Samson. Look at the text in verses 2 and 3. Here's what we're told. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait to the light of the morning, then... We will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight 
And at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Ultimately, this ambush is unsuccessful, right? Samson uses his strength, and he overthrows once again the Philistines trying to attack him. Now, there's a lot of details in this first three verses that the author does not fill in for us. Why is Samson in Gaza? Why does he want to sleep with a prostitute? There's so many unanswered questions. But the intent, the focus of these early verses in chapter 16 is to reinforce to you this idea that Samson's behavior is very predictable. In all of these chapters, he is consistently and faithfully disobeying Yahweh. This is who Samson is, a man who is addicted to women, a man who rarely acknowledges that God is the source of his strength, a man who consistently does whatever is right in his own eyes. And then perhaps one of the saddest observations from Samson's tenure as a judge is that he never seems to mature as a man, as a husband, as a follower of Yahweh. So let's ask ourselves the same question. What about us? We're observing Samson's life here. We're seeing no growth, no spiritual maturity. And we have to reflect in our own lives and ask ourselves the same questions. Are we growing in Christ? Are we maturing in our faith? Do we feel our intimacy with the Lord increasing? Understanding that the Christian life is full of ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys. But if you just took a random date, how is your walk with the Lord compared to 365 days ago, 30 days ago, one day ago? We should always be evaluating. Not in the sense that Christian maturity is somehow this work that gets us into the kingdom of heaven. We know that's by grace through faith in Christ alone. But we should all be striving through the Holy Spirit to grow in Christ. And we don't see Samson growing in his relationship with Yahweh at all throughout his tenure as judge. Our good friend Donald Whitney that came back in May and he talked to us about praying through the Bible. He's written another really short book called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And in that book, he talks about what are some measures that we can have in place to evaluate whether or not we are growing in Christ. And I want to share just a few of those with you this morning. One question he poses is this. Are you governed increasingly by God's Word? So in other words, are you trying more to align yourself with what God's Word says as you walk this journey with Christ. Number two, do you delight in the bride of Christ? In other words, do you love his church? Do you desire to faithfully serve in it and love those in it? Number three, do you still grieve over sin? Do you reflect daily on your own sin and plead for the blood of Jesus to give you forgiveness for that sin? And then number four, this one's very simple, are you more loving? Not just towards those within the church, but those outside of the church. Are you more loving today than you were a year ago? 
Those are just a few questions that we can use as we evaluate our own growth in Christ. So let's take those same questions and impose them on Samson. In the chapters that we have studied about him, was he being governed more and more by God and his word throughout these chapters? No. Was he grieving over his sin? No. And so we see throughout this narrative this predictable, immature behavior from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 16. We also see in this passage, though, Samson's meaningless vow. Remember when we first started in Judges 13, we spent some time walking through that Numbers 6 passage which is where we get the stipulations and the guidelines for someone who was going to be a Nazarite before the Lord. And some of those stipulations were not eating food that is unclean, abstaining from alcohol, not touching dead animals because they're unclean, and not cutting your hair. So how has Samson done reviewing all of these chapters with his keeping of his Nazarite vow? Let's review. Judges 14.9, we read that Samson took the dead carcass of a lion and he scraped the honey out of it. That's a violation of his vow. At his wedding in Judges 14.10, we're told that this great feast happened and we learned that the word for feast there in Hebrew basically means a massive drinking party which I think it's safe to assume that Samson was participating in this. So that's another violation of his Nazarite vow. In Judges 15, last week, remember, the text specifically tells us he took a fresh jawbone and he slaughtered a thousand Philistines with it. That word fresh is key. That means that animal was still unclean. Another violation of his Nazarite vow. Even if you take the Nazarite vow away, let's just examine him as an Israelite. In Judges 14, he marries a Philistine woman. The Old Testament repeatedly challenges and tells the Israelites, do not marry women from foreign nations. And then... At the very beginning of chapter 16, we have him hiring a prostitute. And now, as we enter into the crux of the text, we're going to see that once again, Samson falls for another Philistine woman. He basically has no concern whatsoever for his Nazarite vow. Now, it is important to notice and remember, and we talked about this at the very beginning, that Samson's Nazarite vow was divinely imposed upon him it is not something that he chose necessarily it was imposed upon him so in a sense it makes sense perhaps samson is thinking well because i didn't choose this vow i'm just gonna do what i want to do so we're going to actually read this morning the entire encounter of samson and delilah because the story reads really well so beginning in verse 4 of judges 16 after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies. And how you might be bound that one could subdue you. 
Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. Is Samson really this unintelligent, by the way? And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep. And he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him. And gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Now, this is quite the story. What's interesting, though, is that this is the only time in the entire Samson narrative where we actually have recorded that Samson loved a woman. So let's at least, I guess, give him credit for that. 
He at least loved Delilah. Don't give him too much credit, though. But every woman up to this point that he has encountered, it has been completely about lust. How do we know Delilah was a Philistine? The text doesn't tell us this, but we're told that he found her in the valley of Sorek. That is a reference to a Philistine location. So once again, Samson has no concern about marrying an Israelite, completely disregarding what the Lord has said. And the Philistines approach her and they say, if you can find the source of Samson's strength, if you help us subdue him, we will give you each 1,100 pieces of silver. And so this game between Delilah and Samson begins. First, he says, seven fresh bowstrings. That is what will prevent me from having strength. So Delilah tries it. He rips them off. By the way, fresh bowstrings is another indication that Samson is violating his Nazarite vow. Fresh being the key word there. Number two, Samson tells her, well, new ropes, fresh new ropes, that is the source of my strength. If you tie me up with that, there is no way that I'll be able to escape. And of course he does. He snaps the ropes, the text tells us, like a thread. Third, he moves to his hair, And he tells her that if she weaves the seven locks of his head with a web and fastens it with a pin, he'll become weak. And when she does that, he wakes up, and once again, the plot is destroyed. Three times, Samson lies to her. The third time, he at least moves in the general vicinity of where his strength lies. And yet, because there is so much money on the line here, Delilah wants that payday. She keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And the text makes it very clear that Samson is getting worn down. He is tired of her constantly coming to him, trying to find the source of his strength. The text tells us he was vexed to death. Look at verse 17 again. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. A really bad one, by the way, but technically he has been one. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Don't miss this. Samson has given away his heart to a woman. Now, I know all of you are thinking, well, isn't that what we do when we get married? I mean, technically, yes. But here, functionally, Delilah has become Samson's God. He has submitted to her authority. He is essentially worshiping Delilah. He submits to her in a way that he never submitted to Yahweh in all four chapters that we've been studying him. He reveals to her the true source of his strength. And she only wanted it so that she could make some money. It shows us how meaningless Samson's Nazarite vow actually was to him. Daniel Block, in his commentary on Judges, I think communicates this so well. He says, Samson's problem with his vow is not so much that he willfully violates it. He simply does not take it seriously. Like his strength and the people around him, it is a toy to be played with, not a calling to be fulfilled and because Samson is so reckless and so cavalier in his approach towards his vow 
we're told in verse 20, perhaps the saddest statement of the entire Samson narrative. And there's been lots of sad statements. Here's what the text tells us. He did not know the Lord had left him. Now, if you're in Christ this morning, let me clarify something. This will not happen to you. You have been sealed with the Spirit of God. If you are truly in Christ, if you have repented of your sin and believed in the gospel, the Lord will not leave you. He will not forsake you. God is not going to do that to you. But there are people, perhaps, that we know that maybe at one time professed faith in Christ, and now they show no evidence of following after Jesus whatsoever. No spiritual maturity, no growth, no fruit of the Spirit. None of those questions that we asked earlier, are they governed by God's Word? Do they delight in the bride of Christ? Do they grieve over sin? Are they more loving? If none of those answers apply to those people, the question becomes, how do we treat people that at one time we thought were followers of Christ, but don't exhibit whatsoever any evidence of being in Christ? What do we do with those people? The answer is, we evangelize them. We make sure that they understand the gospel. We make sure that they have truly repented of their sin and believed in faith that apart from Christ's death on the cross for their sin and the power of his resurrection, that there is no hope for eternal life. We must be very careful. In fact, John, in his first epistle, gives us a situation similar to what I was just talking about. He says this in Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. If you're worried about somebody like that in your life, family member, friend, whoever it might be, you should sit down with them. And explain to them the urgency and the truth of the gospel. Because I'm fearful that some people are viewing their salvation based on some ritualistic act that they performed in their past. Whether it be their baptism or some prayer that they just read off a card. And there was no heart change whatsoever in those words. It's not to make anyone in this room or people we know be scared that they're not saved. It's to ensure that they are, in fact, saved. And so in this passage, Samson is completely oblivious. He has no clue that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. Remember in all of those passages we read about the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. Now, when the Spirit of the Lord leaves him, he is completely oblivious. And this time when he wakes up and he's getting ready to fight the Philistines, he couldn't do it. Throughout all of these chapters, perhaps you've been asking this question, because I know I have, why does God continue to use Samson? Every time Samson needs to be delivered, God has been giving him superhuman strength time and time again, even though he's disobedient, even though he violates his Nazarite vow. But there are consequences for his disobedience. And they come right here. 
Look at verse 21. The Philistines seized him, and they gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Don't miss this. Samson, the author, is trying to give us a little bit of information here. Samson, throughout these four chapters, has been doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And now his punishment is that the Philistines will gouge out the very eyes that Samson had been making decisions on on his own from the very beginning. The Philistines not only removed his sight physically, so that he is living in physical darkness. The Lord has removed him spiritually. And he is now living, as the text tells us, in spiritual darkness. There's that parallel there. But number three, in spite of all of this, Samson's victorious death. Look at how this passage ends. The Philistines gathered to offer a sacrifice to their god, Dagon. The Philistines wrongfully think that Dagon is the one who delivered Samson into their hands, even though it wasn't Dagon. It was Yahweh. But they're not smart enough to figure that out. Look at verses 23 and 24. The lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, our god, little g god, by the way, has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. What's so amazing about everything we just read from the Philistines is that none of it is true. The Philistines then call for Samson to come and entertain them. We're told that all of the lords of the Philistines are at this temple. 3,000 people up on the roofs. All of the important leadership within the Philistine nation are present at this party. And Samson asks to be placed in between these pillars. These pillars were made of cedar. They were about 10 feet apart, set on these round bases. Samson asked to be brought in between these pillars. And now the stage is set for the final scene of Samson's life. And his final request of God consists of two parts. Notice it. Number one, he calls upon Yahweh to remember him. Now, don't think that God has forgotten Samson in the sense that God can't forget anything. What Samson means here is that he doesn't want God to neglect him. He wants God to act on his behalf. And then number two, he asks Yahweh to strengthen him one last time. Why should Yahweh do this? Why should God give Samson strength one last time? The only way you can answer that is if you realize that God giving Samson this strength ultimately brings him glory. It's about God. Samson's failures elevate the beauty and the majesty and the glory of our God. His request, even though you might be thinking, well, look at Samson. He comes around at the end. He prays to the Lord. His request is completely self-centered. He only wants strength one last time so that he is not defeated by the Philistines. He's not really concerned about Israel. He's concerned about himself. And yet, 
God still gives him strength. Look at verse 30. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Samson's death, his victorious death, led to the defeat of the Philistines, and we're told that his family comes and gathers his body, and he returns to the tomb with his father Manoah that we read about in Judges 13. Now, all week long, I wrestled with this text because it's so much stuff. It's so much narrative. And if we leave today with nothing but factual information about this story, then we have failed the whole intent of why this is in our Bible. I want you to notice some very specific similarities between Samson, the final judge in the book of Judges, and Jesus, the ultimate and final judge. Israel is under oppression at the hands of the Philistines. Jesus and the Israelites are under oppression by the hands of the Romans. An angel announces the birth of Samson. An angel announces the birth of Jesus. Both men, Samson and Jesus, were called by God to deliver God's people from oppression. Samson is arrested and mocked in the temple of Dagon. Jesus is arrested and mocked on his way to the cross. In Samson's death, he damages the Philistine temple. In Jesus' death, he damages the temple in Jerusalem when the veil of the curtain has been torn in two. But there's a key difference. In spite of all of those similarities, hear me this morning. There is a huge difference between the death of Samson and the death of Jesus. And here it is. As Samson's hands were spread out, pushing the pillars down, thousands of Philistines were crushed by the collapse of the temple. But when Jesus' hands were spread out on the cross, in his death, he actually provides life to thousands upon thousands of people. Anyone that repents of their sins and believes in the good news of Jesus Christ can have restored relationship with God. John 10.10 says this, Jesus himself, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Samson's death may have provided freedom from Philistine bondage, but it does not provide ultimately spiritual bondage. In the new covenant, for all of those that are in Christ, we now have spiritual freedom. Isn't it fitting that the final judge that we read about in the book of Judges points us to a greater judge? One who bestows his righteousness and his holiness in all of those that repent of their sin and believe the gospel. If you're frustrated this morning that God could use a bum like Samson to accomplish his purposes for his people, you have to see that that is intentional on God's part. He wants you to see a greater judge. One who fulfilled every commandment and law perfectly for his people. A judge who lived a holy, righteous, and pure life and died not out of selfish motives so that he could defeat the Romans, but out of selfless love. 
for his people. The question this morning is, do you know Judge Jesus? The ultimate judge, the perfect judge, the one who makes up for every one of Samson's flaws that we read about in this book. If you leave without realizing that the failure of Samson should lead us to the victory of Christ, then you've missed the whole Samson narrative. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. We have labored and will continue to labor through this book all summer, not because the stories are fun to read about, because they point us to Christ, the ultimate judge who died for his people. And if you repent of your sin and believe in the gospel, eternal life is available. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Help us not to get lost in the the weeds of all of the facts surrounding the story, but to ultimately remember that where Samson failed in his righteousness and in his holiness, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. We have that sympathetic high priest. We have the one who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and has now given us direct access to you. And for that, we are thankful. You are worthy of our praise this morning. Samson is not, you are. So we thank you for what we learned from this man's life. And may we be convictional and intentional in making sure lost people around us know that Jesus is a judge. And apart from his righteousness imputed to us, there is no hope for a restored relationship with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.